Well, it's good to be with you. Um, we are covering two questions, two theology questions uh, for the exam, uh, one on ecclesiology and one on counseling. I just want to tell you, when I was in seminary, um, I, I was about to graduate seminary and I was kind of evaluating my education and what I felt equipped on and what I didn't. And ecclesiology, a, the doctrine of the church, I was really aware that that was a weakness. It was a hole in my uh, education. So I felt really weak in it. Um, then I did an internship that was really intensive on uh, ecclesiology. And I, by God's grace, I think it went from a weakness to a, uh, something I, I think a lot about. Um, I've studied a lot. What that means for you is I have a lot, probably more to say uh, maybe I'm going beyond what is helpful to say. So I think what we're going to do in this time together is I'm going to uh, I'm going to lay out for you a bunch of things that you could think through if you're taking the exam on these two questions. Especially, I'll spend more time on the first question than the the second. But I'm going to expose to you lots of scripture. We'll actually read some of it, but I'm going to give you um, various passages. That will be good avenues for you. You couldn't, in the space they provide, do everything that I'm doing um, in this time. But I want to give you plenty of options here that will serve you, I hope well, uh, in taking the exam. Uh, but let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Lord Jesus, you have said, ask and it will be given to you. You have said... That there is no father on earth who, when asked for a fish, would be given a serpent. And in comparison to you, we as fathers are evil. You are so much better than us. And Lord Jesus, you have said that your heavenly father, our heavenly father, will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So that's what we're asking. That your Holy Spirit would take this beyond an academic conversation and would cause us to see the church and counseling in the church the way that you do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Theology question number 23 says, provide a biblical description of the church. And and the first thing I want to do is I want to provide a biblical description of the church in the way that our brothers and sisters understood the church before us. So I'm actually starting with how people in history would have answered this question. Um, In the fourth century, in the Nicene Creed, we're given four ways to understand the biblical description of the church. Christ's church is, first of all, one. Christ's church is one. Uh, This is the way that Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 4. He calls the church of Jesus Christ to be eager to maintain oneness, unity. And then he motivates them. We should be one because God makes things one. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, there is one body, one spirit. You were called to one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. Clement of Alexandria said this, 
the preeminence of the church as the principle of unity is its oneness. This is what one early saint said. The best thing about Jesus's church is that it's one. In this, it surpasses all other things and has nothing like or equal to itself. We are one. We are united. Even though we're diverse, even though the church is dispersed, we are one. Christ's church, according to the Nicene Creed, is also described as being holy, holy. Now the word church implies this. The word church means the assembly of those who've been called out of the world and called to God. So Jesus says this in John 17, as he describes the church, John 17, verse 6, they are the people who the Father gave to Jesus out of the world. It's an idea of holiness, of being set apart for Jesus. And then just a few verses later, this is right before he goes to the cross. If you want to know what Jesus thought the cross would accomplish what he wanted the cross to accomplish, you go to John 17, his prayer. And he says in verse 17, these ones who've been called out of the world for God, he asked the father, sanctify them, make them holy. Holiness obviously has this moral quality The church is the assembly of saints. Those have been set apart. Listen listen to how Paul addresses in Ephesians chapter 5 the church. Think about how holy they are to be, unlike the world. Listen, sexual immorality, Ephesians 5 verse 3. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, a holy church. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking. They're all out of place. You may be sure of this. Everyone who is not holy, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is an idolater, They have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The church is one. The church is holy. The Nicene Creed also has answered this question by saying Christ's church is Catholic. Now, this is where if you you, uh, state the Nicene Creed uh, corporately in your church, you might have an asterisk by the word Catholic. I had to learn to put an asterisk around the, the word Catholic because everyone said, hold up. Are you saying Roman Catholic? How do you want me to say we're Catholic? That's not what Catholic means, the Nicene Creed. It means universal, universal. It's made up of saints from all over. I mean, Jesus in Matthew 28, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. 
He's the real king. And when he says he has all authority, we're expecting him to start handing out commands. And he does. He says, go into all the world and make disciples. In Acts chapter 1, whenever he's about to ascend into heaven, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he wants the church to go into all the earth. Christ church is universal or Catholic. Christ church is apostolic. That's how the Nicene Creed puts it. The church, Christ church is apostolic. The church is made up of those who have heard and believed the message that Christ sent into the world through the apostles. Those, that word means sent out. Christ sends them out with a message. So right, again, right before the cross, John 17, part of that prayer, what does Jesus pray? He says, I'm not asking just for the people who are praying with me right now. He says, I'm asking for those who will believe in me through their word, these men who became apostles, that they may be one and that they may be in us so that the world may believe that You, Father, have sent me. God sends the Son to save. The Son sends the apostles to preach that salvation. And all who believe become part of the church. That's what it means to be apostolic. Now that word apostle isn't isn't official office that does not exist anymore today because those apostles and their preaching is now recorded that message they were sent to preach is recorded now in the bible there's no need for apostles so again in church history tertullian put it this way he said from this we draw up our rule Since the Lord Jesus Christ sent the apostles to preach, our rule is that no others ought to be received as preachers or apostles except those who Christ already appointed. It is also clear, even though there's not apostles anymore, but all doctrine that agrees with what the apostles preached, that has to be considered the truth. And undoubtedly containing that which the church has received from the apostles, from Christ, from God. The church is apostolic. We move on in history more closely to us and we get to the 16th century. And the reformers have answered this question. There are three marks of a true church. Number one, this is what makes a real church, the right preaching of the word, or right preaching of the gospel. Number two, the right practice of the sacraments. So you've got the preached word, the gospel that's preached by churches, and if it, if it lines up with the Bible, that is one of the qualifications to be a church of Jesus Christ. But the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, That is the word that's preached made visible. 
Okay, so this, the reformers thought of it this way. They connected the gospel that a church preaches with these visible representations of the gospel. Baptism. I was buried with Christ. It's visible word and raised to newness of life. The Lord's Supper. His body broken for you. His blood shed for you. The reformer said a true church is one that preaches the right gospel and practices the sacraments rightly. They don't think it's the sacraments are saving, but they're practiced rightly. And then the third mark is the right practice of church discipline. Some of the reformers come in and say, look, uh, church discipline is another sign that a church is a true church of Jesus Christ. We've gone from the 4th century in the Nicene Creed to how this question was answered in the 16th century by the reformers. Let's fast forward to the 19th century. The 19th century, Louis Burkhoff said this, the invisible church may be defined as the company of the elect who are called by the Spirit of God or simply as the communion of believers. The visible church may be defined as the community of those who profess the true faith together. It should be noticed that the membership in both is not altogether alike. The way that Christians have defined church, described church biblically, could be helpful to you just to think through what can I cover or what should I cover in answering this exam question. Now, now let's bring this to today. Mark Dever defines the church this way. The church is that collection of people who are hearing the word of God, responding to it with their lives, and who have obeyed Jesus' specific commands to be baptized and proclaim his death in the Lord's Supper. The church is the body of people called by God's grace through faith in Christ to glorify him by serving him in his word, in his world. What about ACBC? Y'all know ACBC has answered this question. Just a tip. If one of the exam questions um, is on a topic that you can look at the ACBC standards of doctrine and they've actually got a paragraph answering what ACBC believes about that topic, that's a good place to go. Just to think through how you can answer the question. You can check it later, ACBC standards of doctrines on the ACBC website, but I'll just give you article eight, the doctrine of the church. The church is the bride of Christ called to proclaim the word of God, administer baptism in the Lord's Supper and exercise church discipline very much follows the reformers three marks the church is the organism through which god accomplishes his mission in the world it is the main agent for all ministry of the word including the ministry of counseling and discipleship all right we've talked about how this question has been answered looking back and tracing through time Let's now answer it from a different perspective. Start at the beginning of the Bible 
and trace it through the Bible. Okay? So, let me give you a biblical theology of the church. That just means how do we find what the church is by tracing it through the whole Bible. The roots of the church reach all the way back to page one of the Bible. Uh, Genesis 1 says this, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over all the earth. And then it says in verse 28, God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God created the world for this purpose. And this is very relevant to what the church is. God created the world in order to spread the knowledge of him, to have his image or his mirrors, you could say, fill the world, to to spread the knowledge of him and, and also his rule throughout all the world through his people. We know that Adam and Eve did not do this well for very long. Humanity fell into sin and humanity as a group of people can't be trusted by God anymore. As an entire race of people cannot be trusted anymore with this created purpose of spreading the knowledge of God and the rule of God throughout all the world. So God is now looking for someone else to do it. You see, uh, after Genesis 3, when sin comes into the world, the rest of Genesis, you could say the rest of the Bible, the Old Testament anyway, is just following humanity and how it refuses to be an accurate mirror of God and to fill the world with the knowledge of him. And so... Because all of humanity won't do it. God graciously promises to redeem a people through a son. Right after sin comes in, God then says uh, in Genesis 3.15, you will have a son who will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. All of the faithful in, in humanity know that they cannot do God's purpose of spreading the world or filling the world with God's knowledge. Now, they have to look for a specific son. And the Old Testament is the story of God revealing to his people how desperately they need the son. Genesis chapter 12, we then see the, this purpose of God then be handed to a particular man. God redeems a people and, and advances his purposes through Abraham and then the nation of Israel. And then even before Genesis is over, God says to Abraham's wife, kings are going to come from you. And then Jacob, whenever Jacob is blessing all of his sons, he looks to Judah and he says, the scepter will not depart from you. There's going to be a king. So this is what the Bible is doing, guys. It's ultimately going to lead us to a church, but the Bible is revealing 
that we need to look for a son who's going to come from Abraham. He's going to be a king. Who's going to be a, a son of David. That's what the Old Testament is moving toward. Now we're hoping in a specific person, a son of David. And what does he, what does he say about David? Listen, the son of David. Here's your um, Christmas passage. Is it too early to do this, guys? Or is this a group full of Scrooges? I got those Christmas music all year long, Jake. All year long. I'm doing it. Isaiah chapter 11. There will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's the father of David. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And it says when this one comes. What will happen is the earth will then be full of the knowledge of the Lord. That page one desire is now entrusted to this king who's the son of David. And the knowledge of the world is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. Of course, that son of David is Jesus. What I, what I want you to see at this point as we're walking through the Bible is I want you to see how the church fits into the entire original purpose of God to make himself known. The Old Testament ends with the only one who's going to make him known is the son of David. And then John chapter 1 says, here he is. He's the word of God. No one has seen the father except for the son who makes him known. Whereas the the first man who was entrusted with this call failed because he was tempted by Satan. Jesus gets tempted by Satan and he doesn't fail. Colossians chapter 2 tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, he was disarming the rulers of this world, disarming Satan. But not just that, we're told that by his blood, a people has now been bought for God. That is the church. And what does he tell the church? Remember, page one told us that God's desire is to fill the world with the knowledge of him. And when Jesus is, is raised from the dead, he commands his disciples, go into all the world and teach them to obey the rule of the king. Make them know who the king is and cause them to teach them to obey all that the king has commanded. And then I want you, again, I want you to hear page one language for God's purpose for all humanity applied now, not just to Jesus, but to everyone who believes in him. Listen to what it says in Acts chapter six, whenever uh, the spirit of God falls on the church and they start preaching Jesus, listen to this language and the word of God in Acts six, verse seven, the word of God continued to increase. That's from page one. You should increase and multiply. And now the church that's preaching the word of God 
is causing the word to increase, the knowledge of him to increase. And then the number of disciples who know God is, here's the word, multiplied greatly. Luke is using page one language of God's purpose for humanity and saying the purpose of humanity is now being fulfilled by Christ through the church. Now the knowledge of God is filling the whole world. Another way that the Bible describes the church is not just by telling us from page one to the end of the Bible how it fits within God's purposes for the whole world. But the Bible also describes the church. This is the primary way I did it in in my exam by going through the metaphors, certain metaphors. Four images of the church in the Bible. And for this, let's turn to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, first of all, gives the image of the church as a the household of God. The household of God. So if, if you're in Ephesians, looking at the end of chapter 2. The beginning of chapter 2 is where God says everyone in the world is dead in sin. Everyone in the world was following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. They're following Satan. Everyone in the world is born a children of wrath. But God in his mercy made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then he moves in verse 11 and following to talking about how the blood of Christ not only united us with God, but made the church. And the church is made up of people who are very unlike one another. And then it leads to this description in in Ephesians chapter 2, at the end there, that the church is the house of God. Look in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, even Gentiles who were strangers to God, strangers to his promises. Now we are no longer strangers and aliens. People who are outside the house, not welcome in the house of God. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And that house is built on the foundation of the apostles. Again, it's apostolic and prophets. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. This is temple language of him being the the first one who, who builds this house. Verse 21, in Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. This is the way you should view your local church. If it is a true church, you should view your local church 
as being built together into a dwelling place for God. Paul is reaching for this rich Old Testament imagery of the temple. That one place in all the fallen world where God himself lived. God had an address on earth. And it was in the temple in Jerusalem. No other nation, no other people lived with God. And Paul says... God still has an address on earth, but it's just not in one location anymore. It's in the church. The church that's made up of Jew and Gentile that's spread across the whole world. The household of God is holy, he says. Because God lives there. It's being built into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. What the Spirit is doing is He's in our churches. This is His goal to increasingly make us holy so that it makes sense that God God is among us. The people are holy. This is His house. This first image of the church being the household of God is, is related to another image. The church is the family of God. The family of God. So each of the, or many of the letters that are written by the apostles to churches, they start with saying that God is their father. It's the family of God. The church is the gathered sons and daughters adopted by God, living in his house, sharing the inheritance of our elder brother Jesus. The church is the household of God, but then the church is the bride of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 speaks of the church in this way. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25. Listen, as Paul is addressing husbands and how we should behave in marriage, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The church is the wife of Christ, the bride of Christ. That he might sanctify her and having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. I love that part of the hymn that said from heaven he came and sought her. This is why the Son of God left heaven. It's to get a bride. And then he gives himself, dying on the cross. And for this bride, he purifies her. And this this image is carried on through the rest of the Bible. This is the great hope that in the very end, Christ returns. The bride will make herself ready, it says in Revelation 19. She'll be pure and totally devoted to Jesus. Presented to the groom 
for a marriage feast in heaven. The church is the household of God. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. The body of Christ. Look in Ephesians 4. In verse 12 where it says that Christ when he ascended into heaven he sent to earth gifts. Verse 11 describes these gifts as ministers of the word who have this purpose in verse 12 to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. That's the church. And there's this goal that Christ has. We we're to be built up in the body. This is what the church exists to do until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Until we attain to that unity of the faith. Until we attain to mature manhood. Until we attain and we reach the height and the goal of the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then in verse 15, this familiar verse, notice how it uses body language this is what should be happening in every true church verse 15 speaking the truth in love we are to grow up it's it's body and baby kind of language of maturing of of growing grow up in every way into him who is the head into christ the head of the body Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, let's, let's just, let me give you a test now. Okay, verse 16. I want you to find in verse 16 two synonyms for a Christian. Two words used in verse 16 in place of the word Christian. Yes. Yes. Good. Where, do you, where, where does it say that? Well, say the phrase for me. Yes, part. Part of what? Part of a body. A body part. Now, listen, listen. What does Paul assume, what does God assume is true of a Christian? If he calls Christians a part. Yes. He assumes that every Christian is in a, is in a body of Christ. He assumes it. Because the body of Christ, the church, has a job to do. And that is to mature people in Christ. That we would all become, through speaking the truth of love, like Him in every way. And the way it happens is you play your part. What's the other word? There's another word. It's another body word, isn't it? Joint. What does it say?
Yeah. From Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every joint. (laughs) This is in the context of him saying, I want you to be one. How will they be one? Each and every Christian in the church are holding one another together. We're joined together. We're called a joint in the body. We're joined together. We all have a job to do. And that job is to work together to become just like the head, just like Christ. That body imagery is used at the beginning of the book in chapter 1 and verse 22. When Paul is praying for the church, he he prays in chapter 1 verse 22. God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Listen. What is Christ like? This is what the church exists to do, to be the body of Christ, to be the fullness. If you want to know what Jesus Christ is like, the fullness of him who fills all in all is the local church. What a calling. The body is supposed to be like the head. The body is representing the head. The body is showing the world what Jesus is like. Did you have something? That's right. That's right. That's what chapter 4 verse 16 says. This only works if every part of the body does its job. But remember... The job we have is not some role we're feeling on a schedule. Children's ministry, guitar, cleaning bathrooms. That's not the job. Those are things we do in the church and they're necessary to do. The job, the work is Ephesians 4.12. It's Ephesians 4.15. Speaking the truth in love so that the body is built up. To be like Christ. The body of Christ. What a calling. And then there's a fourth image. The church is the new covenant community. The new covenant community. Uh, this is in, in the book of Acts. Where the spirit of God is poured out. Because in the Old Testament it says that the spirit will be poured out when the new covenant comes. Jesus saves a people who are committed in a covenant kind of way to one another. See this throughout the book of Acts. If you want to see what Christ has done, if you want to see what kind of arrangement he has with the people he loves, look at the church, how they are helping one another to obey him, how they're helping one another to heaven. That's what the church is. All right, that's, that's what I have for theology question number 23, a biblical description of the church. If we have time, I want to come back to Ephesians chapter 3 and just close there because it's amazing. It's not in my notes, so I don't have it. But just remind me, Jake, if you're a friend of mine, will you remind me? And that's if I have time. Jake, and there is no promise. That's That's rich. You weren't watching the clock to get in 
here. You know what I'm saying? Came in a bit late, but you're watching it for me. I appreciate you, brother. Let's go to theology. Question number 24, the role of the church in the counseling process. What I want to do is I want to keep for a little bit, keep talking about what the church is and make some conclusions about then what the church does. And one of the main things the church does is counseling, counseling. So the church is made up of those who've been ransomed. This is what Mark 10 45 for the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a blood shed payment to free slaves to free people who were enslaved to selfishness his self-sacrificing service ransoms the people okay i'm, I'm leading you somewhere where his blood actually makes us self-sacrificing people. Where we're not just concerned for ourselves, And that's going to lead us to counseling. The church is, according to 1 Timothy, the pillar and the buttress of the truth that saves and sanctifies. Where in the world can people find the truth of God? The church is the place where counseling should happen. Biblical counseling should happen because the church is the one who holds up and protects the truth. The church is made up of those who have been, again, saved from selfishness. We should be committed to counseling others and their good of following Christ and rescue out of their situations because we have been saved from selfishness, from living like life is about us or we're the center of this world. This is what Jesus says in John 13. What does he say? He says, uh, this is how the world will know that God has sent a savior. John 13, 34 and 35. How will the world know that God has sent a savior, that there's a savior in this world by your sacrificial love, like you loving one another, like I loved you. Sacrificial spending of yourself, sacrificing of yourself for the spiritual good of others. The church is made up of people who are characterized this way. You're known to be a disciple by your sacrificial love, spending of yourself for the spiritual good of others. This leads us to why it should be the church where counseling is happening. But also Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Listen. Listen to what God commands the church to do. Hebrews 3, 12 through 15. Take care. Lest there be in any of you and evil unbelieving hearts leading you to fall away from the living God. When believers are in a season of sin, and sometimes that's counseling situations, right? Seasons of sin. We have this command that we should take care, that every Christian should be one who takes care 
that there not be in anyone in our church an evil, unbelieving heart leading them to fall away from the living God. We care about their season of sin. And then he says, what should you do? Exhort one another. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. That word, exhort one another, is also in John 14 and verse 16. Where Jesus says to his disciples before the cross, I'm going to ask the Father and he's going to give you another counselor. Exhorter. That word exhort is the word counsel. It's the helper. It's the help with counsel. So he he calls the church whenever someone in the church is in sin to counsel. Not just the certified people who've taken their exams. Every believer has this kind of responsibility to care. It's, It's as if God is seeking to keep us safe before the judgment day. And what he does is he gives us a team of counselors. That's what the church is. A team of counselors. Counseling is also an implication of the Great Commission. So, sorry, this is Hebrews. Uh, God calls his people to be concerned to know one another, to know whether there's an evil, unbelieving heart in others. The word exhort, exhort one another every day. In Hebrews 3 is the same word. That is used in John 14 of the Holy Spirit as a counselor. And in order to keep us safe, God gives us a team of counselors, which is the members of our local church. This is why it makes sense that the church is the place where biblical counseling happens. The Great Commission. We've already we've already talked about this multiple times already, but but this, there's an implication in Matthew 28 when Jesus says, "Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey, to observe all that I've commanded." The church exists. The local church has been commissioned not just to take the gospel where it has not been, but once it's gone anywhere, and it's gone to Texas. We're not Jerusalem. We're part of the Great Commission here. The church, the, the gospel has gone here and now has made churches. And what we're to be doing in our churches is helping one another to obey, not just to be aware of Christ's commands, but help one another to obey. And so when we're in seasons of disobedience, counseling is an implication of what we're called to do counseling you say the great commission is about making disciples well you can think of counseling as discipleship counseling as discipleship counseling is targeted helping someone a disciple grow and following Christ in a targeted way during specific seasons, either of their sin or their sorrow. Counseling is discipleship. And that's what the Great Commission is all about. So it should happen 
in the church because Christ commissions the church to do it. It should also happen in the church. Biblical counsel should happen in the church because of this, another implication of what we hear in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that the Holy Spirit gifts every Christian with the same language as Ephesians 4 to, to build up the body of Christ. That's why he gives us gifts. And pastors, you know, the, the ones who might be doing more counseling in the, in the church. Remember, our job, according to Ephesians 4, if you're a pastor, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And that includes the work of counseling. Christ gives ministers of the word to equip church members to speak the truth. And what we saw earlier from Ephesians 4 verse 12 and verse 15, that when you speak the truth in love, the church is built up. Which means that Counseling ministry is effective. Like it, it will actually be used by God to accomplish his purpose of building us up. Listen to what Colossians 1 says. Paul warns everyone so that he might present everyone mature in Christ. And that word warn is the same word translated admonish in first thessalonians 5 paul is saying i warn everyone to mature everyone i'm speaking the truth in order that others might grow in maturity but then when he uses that same word in first thessalonians 5 he uses it as an admonish but it's no longer him who's supposed to do it We urge you, brothers, members of the church, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, be patient with them all. And that word admonish is, is where we get a word for counseling, of applying the word to believers. It's not just the apostle who is a counselor. He expects the church to do counseling. He tells them to admonish. And then he he uses this same word in Romans 15. At the end of Romans, he says to the church, I am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness. The apostle looks at the church in Rome and he, what he sees is that they're filled with knowledge And they are able to instruct. They are able to counsel. The same word. To instruct one another. The church has the ability. To instruct. The church has the expectation. To counsel and instruct. So what does all that give us? The resources. Of the God who owns everything. The resources of the God who owns everything. Are collected. 
and distributed where? In the local church. There are resources in the church that are not earthly commodities. They can't be found anywhere on earth except the church. Because these resources have been exported from heaven. Gifts from Christ. The word of God. The spirit as counselor making us counselors. The ability to speak the word of God, exhort one another, counsel one another to turn away from sin. Powerful resources you can't find anywhere in the world except in the local church. So, when believers do not trust the hardships of their life, do not entrust their counseling to their fellow church members and the the leaders of their church and instead go to professional counselors, they just need to understand it is circumventing. It's not that you can't ever do it. But the primary place where God has revealed that counseling should happen in the Bible, it is in the local church. So professional counselors can be Christians and and, and give counsel in accord with God's word. But counselees should never withhold their struggles from the spirit gifted body of believers with whom God calls them out to live their submission in Christ. That's right. That's right. Now let me give you some kind of practical implications of this. Now now moving kind of in, in some ways away from the theology exam and I'm just kind of instructing on what this would look like in your actual counseling. This could be included in your counseling exam, but I just, the the first suggestion that I would make as a counselor in light of God's will being for counseling and to happen in the church is uh, part of counseling, offering service, counseling service to um, counselees is to require their involvement, their, their meaningful attendance in a healthy church. Require it. I mean, we're not charging for our services and counseling. Require meaningful involvement with the church because it is in the church, not just in the counseling room of that one member of that church, but in the church that the resources of God are being handed out. The, the second thing that I do is I ask each counselee who's a member of my church to always bring another member of the church to sit in on the counseling. What I'm trying to do is to recognize I equip the saints for the work of ministry, including the ministry of counseling. And, what, and I may be meeting with this person one hour a week, but they need more resources and members of the church involved in this recruiting a team of counselors just by having someone else sit in on counseling. Another thing I I do with every counselee is part of their homework every single week is to update a group of members 
group of believers in the church every week by text and to share something that the Lord is teaching them or how he's changing them, what he's doing through counseling, but also to share, ask for prayer so that again, the church can be appealing to God to help in counseling. All right. I ran out of time for Ephesians 3. Ah, all right. Well, yeah. All right. I'll do go. Ephesians 3, this is unbelievable. It's believable. Okay, but it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. I want you, when you think about the church, what should you think about? A lot of sinners failing one another. People are trying our patience that we have to forgive all the time. How does God view the church? Listen to this. What he says in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says in verse 7, I've been made a minister of the gospel. To preach the gospel, to bring to light, he says in verse 8. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. All right. Verse 9 says there's a plan, this mysterious plan that was hidden for ages in God who created all things. Like when he created everything, he had a plan for how he created everything. I want you to skip down, skip the next verse to verse 11. Hear similar language of the creation's plan. Look in verse 11. It says this was according to the eternal purpose That he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Okay. God has a plan when he created everything. And that plan serves in eternity a purpose that he had. I'm making all this with a purpose. And Christ Jesus realizes it. What's the plan? What's the purpose? It's verse 10. Listen. The plan was so that... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authority in the heavenly authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are angels. Okay, when God created all things, He said, "I'm going I'm to accomplish something." And what I'm going to accomplish, I need Christ Jesus. He's going to realize this. And what I want to do is, I want to show off to the angels. My manifold wisdom. It's the word for Joseph's multicolored coat. The all the wisdom of God. The angels are going to see. Now the angels, if you ever thought about it, are really observant creatures. I mean, I don't know if they were there whenever God spoke and the Milky Way burst into being. We know they would have at least been there whenever the world turns in sin away from God and God sends a worldwide flood to wipe out all of the evil except for Noah and his family. And they would have said, look how wise God is. They were all evil. The angels would have observed whenever the king of the world, Pharaoh, backed God's people into the Red Sea and there was no way out. And God, through Moses, parts the Red Sea, makes his people go through dry land and then causes the sea once 
Pharaoh and his delta force get in the middle of the sea, causes the sea to crush them all. And they would have said, look how wise God is. We know the angels would have observed whenever he wiped out tens of thousands of Assyrians that one night in Israel. They might have, but he gets, they get an answer. And they, w- they would have really questioned whenever they watched the Son of God leave heaven. The one who they depend upon, the one who they worship, become a baby. Gasp for breath. Learn to walk. Depend upon his mother. And then grow up and be rejected. They were there, ready to come down from heaven to take him off the cross and to wipe out the Romans and the Jews who were trying to kill Jesus. But they didn't get a call. They were there when they saw Jesus three days later take breath again and then ascend into heaven. But what is it that makes them finally say, God has outdone himself? It's when All of that happens and then Christ Jesus creates out of his death and resurrection a church. That's what the church is. God's purpose to glorify himself through Christ in the world. The church exists to wow the angels. The angels, Michael and Gabriel can't see this anywhere else. They've never seen in all of history. Christians love one another and care for one another and counsel one another. That's why uh, the church is important, according to Ephesians 3. And the church should be the place where this kind of angel-wowing ministry of laying our lives down for others happens in counseling. All right, I'm over, but y'all made me do it. You made me do it. Hey, I, I mean, Ephesians 3, come on. Golly. Amen. They can wait. Um, any any one or two questions? One or two questions before I I've got to teach in like ten minutes downstairs, but I'm happy to answer one or two questions. No. Thank you for that. Well, uh, what's what's that? I, I was made fun of for being a bishop when I was a kid, and I wasn't a Christian. I hated it, and, and now I don't mind it. Bishop means pastor. Yeah, overseer. That's right. Tonight. Yep. Yep. Hey, thank you guys. I'm encouraged by you guys. Keep going. Uh, start plugging away on those exams. Uh, you'll you'll make it through. Let me pray for you, Father in heaven. Thank you for this time together with these your children. We pray that you would embolden them and strengthen them to live for the glory of uh, of you and, and and the wisdom displayed through the church and that and that they would be thrilled to be part of the the uh the organism the system the the group of people who brings the fullness of christ's work to the world and brings the fullness of your glory to the world and may they be encouraged to take part in the counseling work that helps the sorrowful endure and helps sinners to turn back to Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.